This is Death by Ignorance, a podcast about the real world. Episode 11, Suffocating Science, the anti-science movement and its war on reason. For the last three months, I've been talking about several of the more pressing existential threats facing us both individually and as a planetary community. One theme arises again and again in discussing each of these dangers, and it's time we pause to consider this toxic precondition for much of today's insanity. I'm talking about the many faces of the anti-science movement, one of the most corrosive influences in modern society. When I talk about the anti-science movement, I'm not necessarily talking about an organized group that's systematically working towards a set of specific goals. The movement is more of an ideology, a set of ideas, though anti-ideas might be more descriptive. If we imagine a Venn diagram of human thinking, there's a circle sitting off to one side. It's disconnected from the much larger circle of rational thinking, And this outlying set, the anti-science set, contains many smaller overlapping circles, far too many of them, of course, with names like the anti-vaccination set, the climate change denial set, the homeopathic set, to name just a few. What all of these subsets have in common is a deep-seated contempt for rationality, for evidence, for intellectual inquisitiveness. By the way, there are relatively few individuals who only appear in the anti-science set and not one of the smaller internal sets, which is our first hint that a pure anti-science position is quite rare, and most anti-science positions are quite specific, and I'll get more into why this is as we go along. How did this aberrant way of thinking come about in the first place? What keeps it going, and what does it mean? These are a few of the more important questions that we're going to examine today. But let's start out with a critical definition. What is science? Science is a catch-all name for a particular process of thinking. When the scientific process is brought to bear on a given question, a chain of actions is set in motion. A hypothesis is created, carefully crafted to address the question as accurately as possible, and that hypothesis is then rigorously tested using experimentation and observation. It relies heavily on the established findings of prior scientific investigation, but only to the extent that the prior work has survived all subsequent attempts to refute the findings, that it's undergone a thorough peer review process, and that the results have been replicated by other independent investigators. The more rigorous the process, the more credible are the findings. A core principle of the scientific method is that it doesn't output facts. Science is probabilistic in nature, so it's always possible in theory to refine and improve on the accuracy of prior scientific inquiry or invalidate it entirely. The best that science can ever give us is an estimation of physical reality. In some cases, that estimation has been so thoroughly, carefully, and repeatedly confirmed 
as to make it appear to be an absolute certainty for all practical purposes. The molecular structure of water might be one example. Another way to think about the probabilistic nature of science is as follows. Any claim resulting from investigation using the scientific method may be invalidated at some future time using the scientific method. Science can and does all the time modify and even throw out a firmly held scientific position when new evidence becomes available. Science is a way of thinking about the physical world, and it's systematic and strictly evidence-based. Science follows the evidence thoughtfully and systematically, and it accepts the findings, whatever they may be. It's a search for the truth. This is what makes science and the scientific method so powerful and so elegant. It's mankind's crowning achievement. There is a corollary to this conception of science, and that is that the only way to refute the findings of scientific inquiry is through further scientific inquiry. You can't wish away scientific evidence just because it's inconvenient. The scientific method has been developed and refined over the ages to provide us with an ever more accurate estimation of physical reality, an estimation independent of any emotional, supernatural, or mystical constraints. So, at the risk of redundancy, let's clarify what science is not. Science is not a rigid set of absolute truisms. Science is not dogmatic. Science, to the extent that it's good science, isn't open to interpretation, though the significance, relevance, importance, and accuracy of certain findings may be. Bad science, whether deliberate or inadvertent, is inevitably corrected by subsequent good science. And just to be absolutely clear, pseudoscience is not even bad science. It's just not science. If, then, the findings resulting from the application of the scientific process, by their very definition, are immune to refutation by anything other than better science, how do we get our heads around the concept of an anti-science movement? Throughout history, ruling powers from the Church of Rome to Stalin's Russia have adopted broadly anti-scientific agendas, in a deliberate attempt to divide the populace, undermine progress, and stifle individual autonomy. Simply put, such a movement would attempt to supplant evidence-based thinking with ideological conformity. All, of course, with the ultimate goal of creating a credulous population of fearful, fragmented, and faithful followers. A population that can be controlled. The world today is a very different place, and with some notable exceptions, societies across the globe have come to see science as synonymous with progress. A pure anti-science movement, at least in the developed world, would be a tough sell to anyone with a cell phone, which is everyone. Anti-science has evolved into a much more sharply defined tool, pulled out whenever one group or another runs into a specific set of scientific ideas that come into conflict with their ideology 
or threaten their wealth or lessen their power. You probably won't run into a lot of pure anti-science zealots these days. Most modern anti-science advocates have a very specific axe to grind, a particular flavor of science that they want to take exception to. Today's anti-science activists are more likely to be called anti-vaxxers or climate change deniers or homeopaths. They're more likely to launch targeted attacks on specific scientific findings or on the scientists themselves. In virtually every case, anti-science activists are motivated by political expedience, religious dogmatism, or cold hard cash. It's worth noting that while those anti-science activists who are motivated to preserve and protect their religious ideology may actually believe their claims against science, but I doubt that those chasing after political power and money could say the same. For the majority of anti-science ringleaders, their positions are most likely an affectation, just a means to an end the ends being power or money. The same cannot be said for their followers. Often lacking the educational background to know much better or the curiosity to check the facts, their meme-hungry followers are far more likely to be ideologically motivated and basically willing to believe whatever they're told. When a thinking human being is confronted with a piece of evidence that somehow conflicts with their understanding of the world, it leads to an uncomfortable feeling of tension. It's called cognitive dissonance. Most people find this kind of tension very uncomfortable and they are motivated to resolve it as quickly as possible. There are limited possibilities for what comes next. The conflicted person can ignore the situation, but that's just temporary, and the feelings will promptly rush back in every time the subject arises. The second option is to examine the evidence carefully, and if it stands up to close scrutiny, then begin to change the worldview to accommodate this new piece of reality. This is not nearly as easy as it sounds. Our worldviews are very dear to us and we only change them with real concerted effort. But this is what it means to be an adult. We might not like the new worldview, but there it is. Get used to it. The third option is, of course, to simply throw out the inconvenient evidence. This is surprisingly easy to do, especially when there are so many carefully crafted memes being served up in our news feeds. And this is the enormous power of the anti-science movement. The consumers of anti-science propaganda are urgently searching for some quasi-rational reason to discard the uncomfortable truth and avoid the frightening prospect of having to adjust his or her worldview. They are desperate for any remotely plausible argument against the science. And this is always the path of least resistance. For many, like those with religious ideologies, the undereducated and the fully indoctrinated, this path to science denial is understandable and could be anticipated. 
But for others, especially those who have benefited from higher education, uh, work in a science-based field or hold positions of responsibility, this out-of-hand dismissal of conflicting evidence is nothing more than intellectual dishonesty and sheer laziness. Enough generalities. Let's take a closer look at who the anti-science activists are, why they've chosen this strategy to promote their causes, and how they're going about it. We should begin with the most obvious proponents of anti-scientific thinking. But before I tell you who they are, let me ask a question. Who stands to lose the most from a head-to-head confrontation with rational thinking? Unsurprisingly, it is those groups whose ideologies are most vulnerable to exposure from close scientific scrutiny that are also the groups that will fight most earnestly to discredit science wherever and whenever possible. The more glaring the scientific evidence, the more vehement the anti-science rhetoric. I am, of course, talking about religion, and they've been sharpening their anti-science knives for centuries. As you might expect, it's the religions that lurk at the fringes, the biblical literalists, the young earth creationists, and other fundamentalist factions that provide the shrillest denunciation of science. And this is hardly surprising when a particular ideology is totally invested in a set of utterly fantastic beliefs that are so easily and completely discredited by scientific inquiry Their continued ability to attract and retain adherence is tenuous at best. The positions held by many of these groups are examples of the purest and most extreme expressions of anti-scientific thinking in modern society. In some contexts, an anti-science position may be tightly focused on attacking a single school of thought or theory or result or even a single scientist, but that will never be enough for fundamentalist religion, where the attack has to target the very core of rational scientific objectivism. And while certain limited or compartmentalized attacks on science may be able to garner wide public support, the anti-vax movement, for example, That is not necessary or desirable for the radically anti-scientific faith-based activists. These groups only need to convince their congregations. At the end of the day, the fundamentalist religions demand that their flock of believers do just one thing, trade in their curiosity and skepticism for blind faith. In this setting, the vocal denunciation of reason is seen as the highest personal attainment for the devout. Those group members who can demonstrate the most unquestioning faith, who are the strictest adherents to the church's ideology, are exalted and praised for their devotion. And this dynamic leads to large sections of the population that are quite immune to reason, devoid of curiosity, and dangerously hostile to the subversive influence of scientific thinking. Convincing people to sacrifice so much of their humanity in exchange for a promise of eternal life or a room full of nubile virgins, as the case may be, is no mean task. So how do they do it? 
The church has known from the start that the only way to indoctrinate so many people into ideologies that are so patently irrational is to get to them early. The anti-scientific brainwashing has to start as early as possible, but certainly before a budding believer is exposed to the corrupting influence of an inspirational teacher, say, someone that might be able to fire the youngster's curiosity about the nature of the physical world. For me, that was a graduate student in marine biology who worked at my school for a year. His name was Nigel, Nigel Astell, and he went on to finish his degree and join the crew of Jacques Cousteau's Calypso, where he spent the rest of his professional life, but not before igniting a passion for critical thinking and the scientific process in one nine-year-old English schoolboy, and many more, I imagine. So whatever happens, the church has to get to them before something horrible like that happens to them. And to this end, the church has insinuated itself into the education system wherever it can, which is almost everywhere in the United States. The parochial school is one rather obvious way to ensure an endless supply of impressionable young minds, guaranteeing captive audiences for generations to come. But on the bright side, there's a ray of hope. Even when the young are netted at preschool ages, it's not always possible to hijack their minds. No matter how tall and thick the walls are built to keep wonder at bay, I sometimes ponder on what would have become of my own worldview were it not for the systematic abuse and abject cruelty served up by the sadistic brides of Christ that were entrusted with my own preschool education. I suppose I should be grateful to the joyless old spinsters for my early exposure to Christian values in action. Where was I? Most, if not all, faith-based educational systems exist solely to indoctrinate the impressionable young minds in their charge. Even when the educational content is not brazenly doctrinal, the subject matter is presented with extreme prejudice. The secondary goal of parochial education after indoctrination is to instill doubt and directly or indirectly sow confusion and uncertainty about the role of science and the value of rational thinking. Sometimes it's subtle, but usually it isn't. Children are taught about giant floods that never happened, or of a world that's only a few thousand years old, and they're taught these as undisputed facts. And then the lucky kids may be exposed to ironclad scientific concepts like evolution and natural selection, even though they're presented as half-baked crackpot notions entirely undeserving serious consideration. And those are the lucky kids. Many, I suspect, are never introduced to the heresy of evolution at all. But it's not just the church-based institutions in which this type of anti-education is going on. In some parts of the country, public school boards could easily be confused with a local church board. With this type of influence on public education, it's hardly surprising that wholesale rewriting of high school curricula goes unchecked and the same poisonous anti-science propaganda found in parochial grade schools worms its way into mainstream education. 
And if the local high school isn't anti-science enough for you, if children are overheard whispering to one another about fossils from the Silurian period, or if they're caught emailing drawings of Darwin's finches, there's always homeschooling. These kids might not be able to pass a college entrance exam, or for that matter, read or write, but at least they can be protected from monsters like Feynman or Faraday or Fleming. Given the amount of effort and energy that's invested in brainwashing the children of America, it's a real testament to the resilience of curious young minds that so many are able to ultimately reject this myopic and suffocating worldview. But even though many young men and women eventually break the bonds of dogmatic conformity and go on to illustrious careers in archaeology, particle physics, and genetic research, most don't. Is this the legacy of our faith-based, science-proofed approach to education? It's exactly what we should expect, and precisely what we're seeing today. Once the world's leader in educational attainment, we've fallen to 27th, and we have a lot more falling to do. There are a lot of blindly faithful homeschooled chickens that will soon be coming home to roost over the coming decades. The appalling and embarrassing state of U.S. education is multifactorial, and while hopelessly inadequate funding is clearly the most critical factor, the ubiquity of the religious anti-science curriculum is a close second. Where else does this destructive war on science bubble to the surface? There are two other general categories of anti-science activism, and in both cases, the primary motivator is greed. Greed for power and greed for personal enrichment, two of humanity's most revolting traits. Distinct from the almost purely ideological anti-science efforts of fundamentalist religions, the attack on science by corporate entities and aspiring political powers is usually a more utilitarian, calculated strategy. Usually, the attacks are on a rather specific scientific concept that threatens the narrow interests of the instigator. I find it helpful to consider that individuals holding anti-science sentiments fall into one of two groups. The ideologists and the utilitarians, not to be confused with adherence to intellectual utilitarianism, which is something entirely different. The ideologists share a distrust of science that's fairly uniform across the group. In the case of religious ideology, the clergy and the congregation share the same position, as you might expect when the anti-scientific position is, to all intents and purposes, an article of faith. By contrast, the utilitarian anti-science activists consists of two distinct subgroups, the leaders, which I'm going to call the rabble-rousers, and the followers. In this group, the rabble-rousers are much less likely to be motivated by ideology. They almost always have a specific purpose that is served by their claims against science, and they're motivated primarily by financial gain, control, fame, or power. These actors are usually, though not always, relatively intelligent. I'd further propose that the majority of these utilitarian rabble-rousers 
don't actually hold the anti-scientific positions that they espouse. The followers, on the other hand, are far more likely to be ideological and especially prone to be manipulated by the rabble-rousers. While the followers may feel a bond with the rabble-rousers, this is almost certainly not reciprocated. The followers are being duped by the rabble-rousers. This is obviously something of an oversimplification, and individuals may belong to more than a single group, or they may move from group to group over time. It has been my experience, gained through countless doctor-patient encounters, that the vast majority of non-scientists are generally predisposed to trust science, and scientists for that matter. Furthermore, Absent some extraordinary external influence, such individuals are unlikely to challenge their predisposition to trust science. It appears that mistrust of science is a learned condition in which underlying ideology plays a critical role. However, once a specific anti-scientific sentiment is incorporated into a follower's worldview, it has the tendency to be generalized to a broad distrust of science and scientists. And sadly, this general distrust of science is very resistant to change and quite immune to rational persuasion. That being said, the relationship between ideology and an anti-science position is quite complicated and either may exist independent of the other. With this in mind, let's see how climate change denialism fits into this framework. I've covered this at length in another episode of the podcast. But to summarize the main theme, there exists a massive body of irrefutable evidence that anthropogenic global warming is real and that it's increasing at an accelerating pace. There's a huge scientific consensus, 97% of the world's active, published and peer-reviewed climate scientists, to be precise, that states that this atmospheric excess of carbon is having a profound and growing negative impact on the global climate. These scientific findings clearly demonstrate that global warming needs to be addressed immediately and aggressively. Such corrective actions would obviously pose an immediate threat to the fossil fuel industry and to the countless other industries that rely on the burning of fossil fuels for their energy needs. I'll refer to all of these industries as the oil interests for brevity. If the scientific consensus was adopted by the populations and governments of the world, enormous pressure would come to bear on the oil interests to cease and desist in their destruction of the environment. If there were a reasonable scientific position contrary to the scientific consensus, the oil interests would base their self-preservation tactics on that position. But there isn't. The climate is a staggeringly complex system, and as with any highly complex system, researchers disagree on many of the, the small details. But where they agree fully is on the major issues. So the oil interests have no viable scientific grounds to dispute the findings of the consensus. They have chosen, therefore, to assume the role of rabble-rousers-in-chief 
leaders of one of history's most blatant attacks on reason and science. Certainly, there is no ideological basis for the actions of the oil interests. Hell, most of them are scientists themselves. This is nothing less than an all-out offensive on the same knowledge and principles that allowed them to accumulate their incalculable wealth and power in the first place. But what good is a rabble-rouser without a rabble to rouse? The oil interests couldn't just go to the people and explain that they were in danger of losing their staggering wealth and power and ask the people to rally behind them. That would be the same people that oil interests have been bleeding dry for a century. Of course not. They had to find ways to piggyback their self-interests onto the ideologies of the masses to dupe the public into doing the heavy lifting for them. And that is precisely what they have done and what they continue to do. They've made the fight personal by constructing alternative realities wherein threats to oil's hegemony are attacks on your God-given liberties and on your religious rights. They're attacks personally on you. And they've attacked science on every front, from discrediting individual scientists and research groups using ad hominem attacks or through trumped-up charges of data manipulation, by creating smoke screens of confusion and uncertainty, by squabbling over minutiae to distract from the salient matters, by accusing the scientific community of having political ulterior motives for their findings, or by discounting findings as the product of pseudoscience. The oil interests also purchase the services of corrupt politicians, people like Inhofe and Cornyn, McConnell and McCarthy, to name but a few of the most egregious offenders. These utterly unprincipled men then betray their electorate by blithely destroying the environment in exchange for a fistful of cash or some Russian votes or another term in office. The rabble-rousers don't really have anti-science convictions. Most of them don't appear to have any convictions whatsoever, and they put on their anti-science costumes just long enough to inject their pro-oil anti-science lies and vitriol into the hearts and minds of their followers. The followers, seeing only what Facebook and Fox News want them to see, already primed to fear and despise anyone that isn't them, grab hold of whatever anti-science, anti-left, anti-reason memes that are tossed their way and incorporate them into their cause, their purpose, part of their identity. What the rabble-rousers don't realize, or maybe they do realize and just don't give a damn, is that the followers are forming a new worldview, one in which American science can't be trusted, one in which all scientists are frauds and liars. In exchange for a campaign contribution, America's leaders are not only actively destroying our very planet, but they're also systematically poisoning the minds of Americans against progress, and that'll be for generations to come. While I'm on the subject of the oil interests, it's useful to consider that fossil fuel providers and their industrial customers have an unusual relationship with science, a relationship 
that those of us who've had enough of this already may want to take advantage of. The oil interests are among the most direct beneficiaries of everything science has to offer. They use science to sell their latest breakthrough projects, their cars or aeroplanes or satellites that have been scientifically proven to be better than the competition's offerings. They're endlessly touting how this or that science is their secret source. Yet they pour millions of dollars into campaigns to discredit those very same sciences. We should be pointing this out to their followers, loudly and clearly, every time big oil flip-flops on their position on science. This kind of casual lying should be a cause for concern for everyone. Their anti-science advocacy should be made a matter of public record. We've looked at the ideological anti-science of religious fundamentalists and at the self-serving, profit-driven anti-science of big industry. Let's look now at how anti-scientific rhetoric is used to political advantage. In many ways, the anti-science positions taken to advance a political agenda are indistinguishable from those employed by big businesses to protect their financial interests. But there are a couple of important distinctions. The most important of these are, firstly, the intended audience for the anti-scientific rhetoric, and secondly, the extremely low threshold at which large sectors of the population will adopt the new pseudoscientific position without question. In the case of an industrial interest that's facing increased regulation as a result of some new scientific finding, the targets for the misinformation are often lawmakers and regulators. In this situation, the anti-science position can't be too blatantly absurd, and therefore the tactic changes to confusing the audience by manufacturing plausible doubt. The lawmakers, after all, are usually only interested in finding a reasonable basis on which to prevaricate. By making the attack on science sound quasi-scientific, the lawmakers can take a legitimate-appearing wait-and-see approach. So the politician gets his or her campaign donation kickback, the industrial interest gets to keep doing whatever it was doing, and the public is none the wiser and the scientific community can be completely ignored. This all takes some degree of patience and subtlety on the part of the anti-science activists. But when the attack on science is targeting the voting public, those constraints can largely be discarded, and the bar becomes very low indeed. The rabid partisanship and tribalism that has swept the country has all but banished reason debate from politics, and it appears that even the most preposterous claims against science will be accepted as long as the position is consistent with the group's underlying ideology. And this isn't a phenomenon found only at the fringes, and neither is it a uniquely right-wing effect. It's employed with equal gusto by the extreme left. Obviously, extremists at either end of the spectrum are more likely to consume anti-science propaganda, but even those of a more moderate persuasion are not immune. So why is the bar so low? 
Why do presumably rational people cling to the arrant nonsense that's being served up by political anti-science activists? And why do those same voters imbue anti-science memes with almost talismanic power? Well, there are several factors that may be at play. In a country so deeply divided, with an economy that pushes the limits of financial inequality to extremes, it's easy to see how highly educated professionals like scientists would be reflexively reviled as part of the problem, as just another member of the corporate elite. These resentments run deep in times of national unrest, and they powerfully predispose large segments of the population to accept as fact even the most stunningly groundless claims. It's as if the population is hungry for any reason to lash out against anyone or anything that isn't them. It doesn't help that the scientific community really is an elite group, intellectually at least, and this is one of the reasons that science and reason can be so vigorously attacked by both ends of the political spectrum, often at the same time. Then there is the tendency of people to mistrust that which they don't understand. This is an aggravating factor that the scientific community should be doing more to correct. Science should not be as inaccessible to the populace as it is in today's America. Most modern societies are making significant strides to demystify science and technology. And much of their success stems from adoption of progressive childhood education programs, but it's also a result of the excellent work being done by popular science personalities like Brian Cox, Richard Dawkins, Ben Goldacre, and David Attenborough. The U.S. has more than its fair share of popular science personalities too, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, Sam Harris, Michio Kaku, Steven Pinker, and Oliver Sacks, to name just a few. The fact that we have so many outspoken, effective, and committed popular science educators, yet we're falling further and further behind the rest of the developed world in scientific comprehension, is both an indictment of our education system and a testament to the effectiveness of politicized anti-science propaganda in America today. We've already touched on climate change denial from the perspective of big industry, but we should also consider how the same propaganda is being weaponized to advanced political agendas. Acceptance of the scientific consensus would inevitably lead to more stringent regulation over the polluting industries, at least. The financial incentives for industry to attack climate science is therefore obvious. But how do the climate change deniers recruit the rank-and-file population to toe the line? They do so by politicizing their position. No longer is this attack on science just a tool for big oil to leverage the government. Now it's a struggle for individual liberty. The public is led to believe that accepting the scientific consensus on global warming will lead to the people of America being stripped of their rights and liberties. Even if the attack on science is utterly specious, the message is heard loud and clear. And this is just one more example of how the unholy cabal of a corrupt government and their bosses, the corporate special interests, 
are shamelessly manipulating the undereducated, fearful and superstitious population to do their bidding. There is another side to political anti-science, and this one belongs to certain fringe factions from the far left. We'll call these factions the Greens. This growing group also has at its core a predisposition to fear science, mostly as a result of a hopelessly broken education system. For these people, all science is dangerous. It pollutes, it destroys the environment. This viewpoint that science is the opposite of good or healthy and natural, and by definition bad, is no less ignorant than the position held by the climate change deniers. And once again, it results from the country's profound scientific illiteracy. The green activists simply lack the education to comprehend the complexity of science. So fearing what they don't understand, they demonize the scientific process out of hand. You'll recognize many of the far left's anti-science activist groups, of course, the anti-vaxxers, the anti-GMOs, the anti-nuclear activists. Across the board, these various groups see all science as the enemy, conveniently ignoring the countless ways that science is making their existence safer, more comfortable, and longer. So complete is their incomprehension, they just attack science on principle. We talked at length last week about homeopathy and the virulent anti-scientific nonsense that its proponents spout endlessly. There's a great deal of overlap between this band of quackery and those of the Greens. It's worth pointing out that the far-left anti-science activists, ready to attack all science from every angle, find themselves in incongruous positions when they have to defend the science of global warming. But that's a little easier to understand when you realize that they don't understand that science either. What we need to learn from all of these examples is that the vast majority of attacks on science are nothing more than a politically expedient prop. They're not legitimate challenges to science. They are uninformed and reckless acts of sabotage against a process that they don't understand or that's standing in their way. Let me take a few moments to explain the how of the anti-science activist. First, it's not a rational debate about the merits of this finding or that. That is not an attack on science. That actually is science. We get closer to the truth every time we challenge a particular study or finding. Real science is always trying to refute yesterday's science. It's how we learn. The anti-science movement has no interest in moving us closer to the truth, and it doesn't respect the scientific method. It's blindly destructive, a blunt object used as a weapon. Anti-science cannot go toe-to-toe -to -toe with science. So instead, it sneaks around science's back and it probes it for weaknesses. But again, not in the science itself, but in how it was written or who wrote it or any of dozens of real or manufactured vulnerabilities. When it finds one, an inconsistent data point, for example, it creates a backstory, a narrative that's blown out of all proportion. This fiction is then used to manufacture uncertainty about the findings of the study. It doesn't need to be remotely substantive. It just needs to sound 
kind of sciency. For the vast majority of anti-science activists, that's all they can hope for, a little doubt. And sowing doubt is an extremely powerful weapon in the war on reason. The bar for causing doubt is far, far lower than it would be for an outright refutation, so it's often the approach of choice. Anti-science propagandists also like to play with words and definitions. The language of science is remarkably clear and unambiguous. The English language, on the other hand, is not, and activists will often use ambiguous words to alter the meaning of a scientific proposition. The best example is the clever way the fundamentalists twist the implied meaning of the word theory when they seek to discredit evolution. In the non-scientific vernacular, a theory is an idea or concept that may or may not be true. Somebody just thought it up. But in science, we use the same word to describe a formal collection of tested and validated hypotheses that when taken as a whole, serve as the most probable and accurate description of a system that is currently available to science. As you can see, the theory of evolution is a phrase that can be passed in two very different ways. The young earth creationists who use this trickery to cast doubt on what is among our most thoroughly tested and widely accepted theories in biology are nothing more than shabby charlatans who lack the intelligence to question the science and lack the moral integrity to resist cheating their own congregants. Anti-science activists appear to have no compunction about deceiving their audiences wherever it's convenient. Many of their other tactics demonstrate this rather clearly. They'll often ascribe false motives to scientists, claiming, for example, that climate scientists are motivated by a desire for a bigger government. They'll frequently resort to ad hominem attacks on the individuals themselves, like Darwin's a racist, for example. And whether the accusations are true, partially true, or entirely fabricated, it makes no difference to science. His theory has been tested and modified and expanded by hundreds of later scientists, and in so doing, it's been validated over and over again. So whether or not Darwin was a racist or a Martian for that matter doesn't make any difference to his science. But the creationists will cling to anything, no matter how irrelevant, to taint the scientists' work. Science is also attacked when the real or imagined findings may lead to a real or imagined negative social consequence. One of the most spectacularly absurd attacks in this category is the attempt to delegitimize Einstein's theory of relativity on the basis that, by believing in such a theory, society will suddenly and completely embrace moral relativism as an inevitable consequence. I can only guess that this is because they uh, both contain a form of the word relative. Anyway, I see this as a, an example of how many in the anti-science movement also don't understand words very well. Many anti-science activists are prone to using flawed arguments of every conceivable type. Clearly, logic is not one of their strong suits. 
One such logical fallacy is the conclusion that when tons of people believe the same thing, that makes it a fact. One unavoidable conclusion that springs from this illogical position is that Copernicus was incorrect in placing the sun at the center of the solar system because literally everyone else who had an opinion on the matter back then said the earth was the center of the solar system. This type of argument shows more than anything else the intellectual feebleness of the anti-science movement. While hardly a very persuasive tactic, many pseudoscientific groups manipulate the language to suggest that there's some real science backing up their preposterous claims. Examples include homeopathic medicine and creation science. Of course, homeopathy and creationism have more in common with home brewing and hallucination than they do with medicine and science, respectively. A comfortable fallback position for the anti-science movement is to call any claims that they don't like as part of a conspiracy theory. This wretched argument has become a perennial favorite of the far right and the extreme left, who use it willy-nilly to discard anything they don't like or can't understand. A more structured and dangerous way in which science is being attacked is by preventing inconvenient scientific facts from being developed in the first place. Science is expensive, and much of the cost is provided by our tax dollars. Stop the funding, and you stop the science. This systematic defunding of science has been one of the most indefensible and shameful agendas of the current administration, and that really is saying something. The elimination of a functional environmental protection agency is just one example of how the anti-science movement can silence scientists and reverse progress. At the very bottom of the anti-science cesspit, you can find the belligerent deniers. These profoundly ignorant clusters of buffoons lack the skills to engage in the slightly more sophisticated assaults on reason, and instead they spend their time ranting at the facts. Hard though it is to believe, these individuals are able to somehow secure public platforms from which they can educate their loyal followers about the non-existence of HIV or of germs or of moon landings or even of the Holocaust. Alex Jones is one of the better known of these sad individuals. He's a man so hopelessly unmoored from reality that it is genuinely disturbing to watch him degrade himself publicly on television. These are just a few examples of how science is under attack. There are many, many more. Wherever science conflicts with the interests of the wealthy, the powerful, or the faithful, it comes under attack. And the fallout will continue to poison American minds and weaken the nation itself for generations to come. While other countries are finding new and exciting ways to make science exciting, fun, and engaging to their people, we've institutionalized the dumbing down of ours. And if you don't think this poses an urgent existential threat to everything this proud nation once stood for, 
then you're in for a nasty surprise. We must stop this insane stampede to the brink. Have we learned nothing? It's time to hit the reset button before it's too late. The hopelessly corrupt and utterly incompetent leadership of our country needs to go. Go home for some, go to prison for most, I imagine. We must demand a reform of campaign finance law. Money does not belong in politics. The real power in Washington, the bottomless coffers of big business, must be thrown out of government once and for all. The same goes for religion. Church and state should be separate, as our Constitution demands. And while we're at it, the Church also needs to start following the same laws as the rest of us, and pay taxes like the rest of us. Religion needs to get the hell out of the education business. It's done more than enough damage already. The education of our children needs to be made a major national priority. Schools need to be funded in every community, not just in the wealthy white suburbs. Teachers, the very best we can find or train, must be attracted and retained with good salaries and full benefits. And they must be allowed to teach our children what they will need to compete in a world that is fast leaving us behind. When we start to move towards these goals, science will once again rise to assume its rightful place in a progressive modern society. And this move forward must start with each of us right now. Call out anti-science propaganda wherever and whenever we see it. Remove the rabble-rousers from position of influence Stop supporting any and all businesses that resort to an attack on reason to further their wealth and power. We need to talk to our friends and talk to our enemies about the absolute necessity of supporting scientific education and advancement. Look for ways in which we can advocate for a strong and respected scientific community that also respects the beliefs and ideologies of others. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be quick, but every day that we settle for mediocrity, for the status quo, we fall further behind the rest of the world. And hear this, there will be a point of no return. Let's do something before we get there. Good day.